Okay, starting at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, thank you very much indeed, Laura. And uh, let me give uh, you a warm welcome. If uh, uh, you haven't heard that yet, then let me say it again. Uh, particularly if you are new uh, or settling into church, we're really, really thrilled that you're here. And uh, as we begin this uh, new series in 1 Peter, it'd be great to have uh, the book of 1 Peter open in front of you as we give ourselves uh, to this word, give our attention uh, to these words of God. And let me uh, lead us in pray, prayer as we do that. Let's pray for God's help. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Heavenly Father, we do pray now that as we turn to your word, we will see Jesus we will put our trust in him, and you will fill us with the joy that only comes from knowing him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you an alien? That's my question as we begin this 11-week journey through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. Are you an alien. I'm not asking you to own up to the fact that you arrived on our planet one dark night in a smoking spaceship and are secretly transmitting messages about the human race back to your extraterrestrial leaders, um, although I do have my suspicions about one or two of you. <laughs> now, I'm asking whether or not you feel like a stranger in this world. Do you feel that this world is not your true home. That although you live here, you don't really belong here. I guess many in this room know what it's like to be an alien in a strange culture. Some because we have spent time abroad in the past, or some because we have come to the UK from another part of the world. And some of those uh, guests that we're hoping to welcome on Tuesday night at the International Hub. Uh, some have even come from one part of the country to another, so people have made the transition from Wales to England. Some have even dared to cross the border from Yorkshire to Lancashire. And if you've had that kind of experience, you'll know that while it may be an adventure for a while, it, see, it soon becomes hard and draining and disorienting to live somewhere other than the place of your birth, 
to be a refugee or an immigrant or a visitor or an exile where the language is different and the food is different and the humor is different and the weather is different and they drive on the wrong side of the road. It's difficult to be an alien. Emma and I spent four years in Australia when we were fairly newly married and uh, it was great. The weather was fantastic. Great place to live, but they call sandals thongs and every single creature is trying to kill you. <laughs> Even the magpies are trying to kill you. It's difficult to live in a foreign place. But if that's your experience of life in general in this world, regardless of where you were born and where in the world you live now, if you feel in this world like an alien, then I've got good news for you this morning. Because according to the letter of 1 Peter, that is exactly how it should feel to be a Christian. To be an alien is how it should feel and how it will feel to be a follower with Jesus. For all the time we live in this world until we make it to our true home with him. In fact, I want to suggest that that is the purpose of the letter. That Peter has written this letter to help people for whom this world is not their home to enable them to make it home to the end. Or as I put on the sheet, it's about living as God's people in an ungodly world. So look how the letter begins. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter begins, as is typical of letters in his day, by identifying himself as the letter writer. So we know right from the beginning that we are listening to the words of Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, someone who saw all the miracles of Jesus and heard all the teaching of Jesus. But notice how he describes himself there in verse 1. Not as a friend of Jesus, someone who's got all these memories and recollections and experiences, if you want to know about those, go to the Gospel of Mark and we can read them there. Instead, he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that here is the weighty, God-given understanding of what it means now to live with Jesus as king. Peter is an apostle of Jesus. That is, he's been sent by God to bring us the authoritative teaching about Jesus to his people. Which is why he ends that opening with the greeting of grace and peace. Not a mere wish or empty formality like we might write, you know, good luck or best wishes or something in a card. But grace and peace sums up the experience we will have if we listen to the words of the apostle. Why grace and peace? Why not say you know, love and blessing or something like that? Well, think about it. If you imagine the Christian life as a kind of a journey, or the story of the Bible as a journey, then those words sum up the beginning and the end. Grace is where it all begins. The undeserved generosity of God. The love and kindness of God in his plan to deal with sinners that's what gets the whole mighty journey going, grace. And peace is where the story ends, where it's all heading, the all-encompassing shalom of God in which all things are put right at the end. So do you want grace and peace? Do you want a life where grace and peace are multiplied, are yours in abundance? I can't think of anybody who wouldn't want those things in their heart of hearts, can you? An attitude of grace in the heart of God, peace at the end of all things. 
Well, that is what is on offer as we listen to the words of God's apostle. Grace and peace, the very best life you can have. Well, that's who the letter is for, but from, but who is the letter for? Well, having introduced himself, Peter now identifies the recipients of the letter using two key words in verse 1. In our version, he calls them elect strangers. Ignore the comma in between. It's a description of a people, elect strangers. More literally, elect exiles. And we need to think about these words very carefully because they really give us a kind of a key to understanding the letter. Elect means chosen by God. Early this week at Growth Group Central, Felicity was helping a bunch of us think about how to tell our personal story of becoming a Christian. How we first heard the message of Jesus, how we became convinced of its truth and made the decision to follow Jesus. And of course, as we shared some of our stories among ourselves, we realized that all of our stories are different. Some of us grew up in homes believing and we were taught the gospel from birth. Some of us grew up in homes that didn't believe the gospel and we heard it from another source. Some people had dramatic stories of changed minds and lifestyles. But what Peter is saying here is that behind all of those stories, and I guess in a room like this we've got over a hundred, haven't we, different stories of how people have become Christians, Behind all of those stories is one story of God's election of his people. Behind all of those human decisions is God's decision. And so no matter what your particular story is, if you're a Christian this morning, before you chose God, he chose you. And it really matters that we come to think of ourselves as chosen by God. It matters that that becomes part of our identity. Why does it matter? Well, verse 2 goes on to explain it. In verse 2, we see three astonishing things that had to happen for you to become a Christian. First, he says you had to be chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That foreknowledge of God is not God looking into the distance and seeing that at some point you will choose him. It's his decision in the past about you, a choice to include you among his people. Not, of course, because God saw something special about you, but for reasons that he will always keep to himself. He just chose you. He chose to set his grace upon you because he is God. Second, that choice of God has been put into the effect through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To be sanctified simply means to be set apart by God for his special purpose. So it's a kind of a, one of those jargony words, isn't it? It sounds a little bit complicated, but sanctified just means set apart by God for God. Next week we'll see that the means God uses to do this is the word, the message of the Bible, the proclamation of the gospel. And so God, who has chosen his people from eternity, has acted in time by the Spirit to bring you the word so that you become a believer, set apart, sanctified for his purpose. But how can sinful peoples like you and I be set apart for God? How can those who are fundamentally ungodly in our thinking be made fit for God's kingdom? Well, thirdly, verse 2, God has chosen us for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Now, this obedience to Jesus is not, I think, a life of obedience in behavior and conduct, although Peter will have plenty to say about that in time. But he's speaking there of the one act of obedience to Jesus that begins the Christian life. I say that because a number of times through the letter he comes back to that in 122 and a number of other times. Peter explains the beginning of the Christian life as obedience to the truth. To be obedient to Jesus is not to be someone who is kind of morally upright and good. It is somebody who 
accepts Jesus as Lord, who accepts the message of Jesus as King. And when you do that, notice what he says. You receive the benefits of his sprinkled blood. Old Testament language there for the work that Jesus achieved on the cross. In other words, you receive the forgiveness of sins. And so, to put this another way, how do you know if you are elect? How do you know this morning, right now, if you are one of God's chosen people? It's no good looking inside yourself to see if you feel elect. There's no list you can consult. There's no one whose opinion you can ask. You just have to ask yourself the question, are you obedient to the gospel of Jesus? Are you a forgiven person? Are you someone who has trusted in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you trusting that right now? Then if so, then you are chosen by God. You are among the elect. And as I say, it's going to be very important for us as we go through the letter to come to see this as part of our identity. Just look on at 2 verse 9, for example, where he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, and all the outworkings of that in the Christian life. But right now, one of the outcomes is just to stand back in amazement at the privilege we have of being God's people. And that means I need to ask you, to consider whether you are among God's people. Have you taken that momentous step of obeying the gospel? Have you received the forgiveness of your sins because of the death of Jesus on the cross? Well, if not, keep listening this morning because we're going to see that there is no better way to live. But there is a catch to being God's chosen people. There is a downside to it. It's a temporary one, but it's a real one. If you are one of God's people, you become an alien in the world. And the more you understand what it means to belong to God, the more you understand that identity as God's elect people, the more alien you'll feel in the world. Or to use Peter's term in verse 1, the more you will feel like an exile. In fact, there are at least three reasons Peter uses the word exiles to describe his readers. And these are going to be useful for us in unpacking, opening up this book. First, because it identifies them with the Old Testament people of God. It identifies them with the Old Testament people of God. So I know some people are very familiar with this, but there are others here for whom the Bible is a new thing. And what we need to understand is that 500 years before Jesus, the people of God went into exile. They found themselves being taken away by their enemies from the land that God had given them to live in Babylon. One of the most famous Psalms of the Bible, Psalm 137, it was converted into a pop song, I think in the 1980s, or it was even the 70s, talks about the way they sat by the rivers of Babylon. Remember that? And the Jewish people, away from home, grieving, mourning the loss of the land as they sat as exiles in Babylon. And after the exile, the Jews who remained in those foreign places became known as the diaspora or the dispersion. And the word is actually here in verse 1, translated in our Bibles as scattered. And so the Christians to whom Peter is writing, whether Jewish or Gentile, probably a mixture of the two, were now scattered around the Roman Empire in what is now modern-day Turkey. And so Peter wants these readers in their situation to identify themselves with the Old Testament people of God in exile. He is saying your life will feel like you're in Babylon. An idea Peter picks up at the end in chapter 5. So can you see what he's saying? They might be living in Pontus or Galatia or Cappadocia, but they're living in Babylon. 
Because those places are not their true home. Their true home is with God. That's the first reason he calls them exiles, to identify them with the Old Testament people of God. The second reason Peter calls them exiles is also to do with the Old Testament. Because many years before the people of Israel went into exile in Babylon, there was actually another exile, an even more important one in the Bible story. They went into exile in Egypt. They were enslaved, rescued, ransomed by God, and then led through the wilderness to the promised land. And this movement of God's people from slavery to freedom, from death to life, was a defining moment. And we're going to see that Peter constantly picks up on that imagery to explain the Christian life. But there's one final reason Peter refers to the Christians as exiles and aliens. And again, this is a theme we'll see repeatedly and powerfully as the letter progresses. He calls them exiles because Jesus was an exile too. Over and over in the letter, Peter wants his readers to come to see their experience as alienation in the world as aligned with Jesus' experience of alienation. He is chosen by God too, but rejected by man, 2 verse 4. He suffered for doing good in the world, 2, 21 to 22. He was rejected, 2, 7, excluded, 2, 23, ultimately crucified by a world that had no place for him. He was the ultimate alien, the ultimate stranger. And Peter's going to show us that by trusting in God, By obedience to God, Jesus made it through the exile of death, through the journey of suffering and humiliation to the glory of the promised land. And here's the point. This is very important. It is by clinging to Jesus that we undertake the same journey. He went through suffering and death into glory. And if we're going to make it home, we must cling to him and do the same. Well, that then is who the letter is for, elect exiles. And because of that, I think the letter is going to be especially relevant for us right now. The situation that Peter is writing to was actually just before a time of horrific persecution of Christians. You may know that the Roman Emperor Nero was uh, somebody who loved to burn Christians like kind of Roman candles in his garden and feed them to the lions. Well, that time was not quite here when Peter wrote this letter. It was just around the corner, just a few years away. But that time of horror was being foreshadowed by a subtler kind of persecution. As you read through the letter, perhaps you've done it this week, or perhaps you'll have time to read it through this week, you'll notice that the persecution is is mainly verbal. People are not being burned or fed to the lions. But there is verbal abuse, there is humiliation, there is marginalization. This is a time when to be a Christian seems odd to the world, dangerous, maybe even evil. And I wonder if that sounds a little bit like the time in which we live in now. Because over the last 50 years or so, our world has changed, hasn't it? It's changed dramatically for the Christian so that we feel more alien now than we have done for a very long time. It's different depending on your age, isn't it? If you're kind of over 40, it feels like you've lost something. If you're under that age and you've never known any different, it feels like you're navigating a very, very difficult journey to work out what it means to be a Christian at school and university and in this culture that is getting rid of any recollection of Christian thinking. And what the letter of 1 Peter is going to do, it's going to remind us that this is normal. This, what we sometimes call the post-Christian culture, is normal 
And so we need to relearn our identity as God's exiles in the world. We need to remember that this world is not our home. And it never has been. But our home is with Jesus in the promised land. And it's going to help us because as the pressure grows in our culture, the pressure to conform, the pressure to be silent, the feeling of shame and exclusion on Christians, as that grows, we need to learn, don't we, how to stand firm, how to make it to the end and not give up. And that's what Peter is here to tell us. Well, let's uh, get a taste of it then with these opening few verses in 3 to 9. Because here, Peter gives us three reasons that God's people will make it to the end. Three reasons that we will make it home. Have a look at them with me. Firstly, because God's people are reborn by the gospel. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. There's a huge amount we could say about that rich sentence. But just notice the very striking image at the heart of it. Can you see what it is? He says, Christian, you have been reborn. Now, I suspect that that's not a great surprise, and this image of the born-again Christian has been overused, so it's lost its shock value. But a couple of people in this room have recently witnessed the birth of a human being. All of us have been at the birth of a human being. Few of us remember it. But if you have witnessed the birth of a human being, you know what a dramatic thing it is, don't you? If you think about it, the birth of a baby into the world is the biggest change of circumstances that can ever happen to you other than death. Launched into the world from the safety of the womb, never to return, this is the biggest event of your life, isn't it? To be born. And Peter says that this is a fitting image to describe the radical change of circumstances that a person undergoes to become a Christian believer. It might not feel like it at the time, but it is. Launched into a new world by God, by the work of the Spirit. Why is such a radical change needed? Why is such a radical image needed? Because Peter says you've been born into a living hope. A living hope. Now think about that. If to become a Christian is to be born into a living hope, then what does that tell you about the hope you had before? As a once born person, you were born into a dead hope. Because your hope was only for this world. I was trying to get my head around this, so I picked up a copy of Cumbria Life magazine. You know, the kind of glossy magazines, it's just full of you know, adverts and there's the occasional article. And I just looked through this magazine to ask myself the question, what does it mean in practice to make this world your home? So I'd been spending a week in 1 Peter and... That kind of, I just need some, some not, not reality, I just need some worldly reality. What does it mean to make this world your home? Well, I'll tell you what Cumbria Life says. How to design your perfect bathroom. Article number one. It's never too late to get your body holiday ready. Although I think this is the August thing. It is, it is too late, just so <laughs> we're at the end of, we're in October now, aren't we? It is too late to get your body holiday ready, sorry. A guide to midlife dating, taking the hassle out of finding like-minded people with similar lifestyles, tastes, and backgrounds. How to give your dog the best holiday of its life. And then the main article, the, 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 the sort of the, the central article, 
about a couple who have had a second career making gin from foraged ingredients. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, apart from the fact that dogs do not need holidays. <laughs> Maybe your dog does. <laughs> you can get your dog holiday ready, get them some gin, you can put all these things together at once, can't you? But put the word hope next to them, and you start to realize why the hope you have in this world is a dead hope. How the hope you have in this world is a very limited hope, isn't it? It's limited to bodily enjoyment and security. Get your body ready for the holiday, but come January, <laughs> it's a different story. It's limited, isn't it? To relationships, to achievement, to comfort, to health. Push beyond those things, achieve all of those things, and you hit the wall known as death. See, it's a dead hope, isn't it? Whatever you achieve in this life, it's a dead hope. And so when Peter says you've been born into a living hope, he is clearly saying that something has pushed you through the barrier of death so that now your hope is not focused in this world, is not limited by the walls that surround us in this world, but, verse 4, you've been pushed through into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Now, I suggest this is brilliant. If you've come to church this morning, just feeling the pain of exile. Or maybe, as Nathan said at the beginning, you've just had a bad week. Because the weather is rubbish. And the trains are always late. And your arthritis is playing up. And the children have been difficult. And that bug's been going around. And you're not sure how that exam went. And Well, listen to this. Because the word inheritance is a future word, isn't it? It's a powerful word for something that belongs to you that you don't yet have. And again, it's a story straight out, it's a word straight out of the Old Testament story. In fact, the word translated heritance is an allotment. And when we think of allotment, we think of these you know, people who have sheds and grow too many marrows and all this kind of thing. But the allotment, the inheritance of the Old Testament is a slice of the good life, a slice of the new creation, a slice of the land of the milk and honey. You're going to have a freehold ownership of the promised land. And so when Peter says there is an inheritance for you, he is not even saying you're going to have a little allotment with a few cucumbers and a little kind of greenhouse. He's not even saying you're going to have a slice of the land of Canaan. He's saying you are going to have an ownership of the new creation. There is a place where you will truly call home. Well, how has all this happened? It's happened, notice, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Of course. How else could it happen? How else could we break through that barrier of death unless there were somebody to lead the way and break through the barrier for us? And that's what Jesus has done. Like a fearless man with an enormous chainsaw bashing his way through an impenetrable jungle. No idea why that image came to me, but I think it's a good one. Jesus has pushed his way through the wall of death so we can easily follow. How do we follow? How do we do it? By believing the gospel. And so our hope is solid, concrete, indestructible. Notice that is different to the way we normally speak of hope, isn't it? Normally we speak of hope as something that is uncertain. I hope the sun will come out. I hope the train will be on time. Never is, but I hope it will be. And so there's an anxiety attached to our hope. There's an uncertainty attached to our hope. It's really wishful thinking. But cling to Jesus, who has bashed through the wall of death 
then there is a solid hope, a guarantee, an inheritance that cannot perish and fade. So that's the first thing. God's people living in an ungodly world. We know we will make it to the end because we have been reborn by the gospel. But secondly, verse 5, we are guarded by God. Verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. See, what verse 5 is telling us is that not only is our future hope being kept in heaven for us, verse 4, but we are being kept safe for it, guarded by God. And this is very good news for two reasons. First, because it turns out that the journey is going to be a difficult one. It's not surprising, is it, if Jesus had to rise again to take us there, he had to die first. And if we're going to cling to Jesus, we're going to have to die first. And so there will be a, a kind of a death involved in this journey. A death to sin, a death to self, a death to the world. I'm just flip over to 4.13 to see one example, 4.13, where Peter says, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his journey is revealed. See that the shape of Jesus' journey is the shape of the journey we're going to be on as well. Now, how could your faith, which sounds such a weak thing, how could your faith, your grip on Christ, survive that unless God, verse 5, were himself guarding it? And the second problem is that as we cling to Jesus... Everything in this world is telling us not to. The world is screaming at us not to take God seriously. The gospel of this world is be happy. Get what you deserve. Take your dog on holiday and drink gin and look after number one. And obviously any suffering is God making a huge mistake about you. In other words, how can you keep believing that the living hope is better than the hope you can see around you. Because, verse 5, God guards your faith. In other words, God is not like an Amazon delivery driver. Have you had the experience I had this week? I was working on my sermon at my desk. The doorbell rings, followed immediately by a very loud knock, as if the house is burning down. I rush down the stairs and open the front door, a movement that takes me approximately four seconds. I open the door, and there is nobody there. Just the sound of a diesel engine disappearing down the street. I look down, and there, on the doorstep, dumped in a puddle, in a virtuously recycled cardboard packaging, soaked through is my new commentary on 1 Peter, <laughs> ruined by the rain. Have you noticed that? Since COVID, Amazon delivery drivers, they don't care. They dump and run. And somebody has obviously done the math that it's better to just pay the refunds, which I quickly asked for, than slow the delivery down. But can you see in verse 5 how God is not like an Amazon delivery driver when it comes to our salvation? Because he is going to take us all the way. He's not going to dump us halfway. He's not going to leave us to our fate. He cares too much about us so that the state we're in when we arrive is the state in which we began. He guards our faith, and therefore our future is totally secure. It's no surprise, is it, if he chose us before the creation of the world then why wouldn't he guard our faith until the end? But there is a catch. Because the way God does this is the difficulty. See, it sounds on paper good that God shields us through faith. But what does this look like in the wild? What does it look like in reality? And that's our third and final point. God guards our faith by testing it 
through trials. God guards our faith by making sure our faith is real, by proving it in the fire of suffering. Well, this is the first time he introduces this theme in the letter, verse 6. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So one of the realities of life in this world is that there will be what Peter calls trials which cause grief. We will not always be happy in this world. Now, what what are these trials? Well, at one level, there are the trials that come from living in a broken world. Man is born to trouble, says Job in the Old Testament, as surely as sparks fly upwards. And so at one level, I think the trials are just the trials of life, of sickness, of accident, of poverty, of unemployment, of natural disaster, violence and war, to mention just a few. So when I was working on this part of the sermon this week, two things happened in the space of 24 hours. My car broke down for the fifth time this year and my computer crashed mid-sermon writing. I had to get Nathan to come and put his magic hands on my computer, got things back up and running and retrieved my work, but the car's still in the garage. Bad week. And they are trials, aren't they, those things? And then for various reasons I won't go into, our week got worse before it got better. And I'm not talking about the Amazon delivery driver. But as we'll see, there is more to the trials that Peter speaks of than this. Because he's going to tell us that God's people suffer additionally to the trials of the broken world. There are the trials that come because you are a Christian. In particular, there is the hostility of the world that crucified Jesus is now directed at you. Whether it is Nero burning Christians and feeding them to the lions, which is going to come in a few years from the letter, or whether it's the low-level persecution, the humiliation, the ostracism of the community, the feeling of political weakness that Christians had at the, in this point in history. And behind that hostility, there is the hatred of our spiritual enemy, who in 5 verse 8, Peter describes as like a roaring lion ready to devour. Which means if you're not a Christian this morning, and you're wondering whether this is for you, then I can tell you that if you become a Christian, life will be harder. You may have heard people say, well, you know, become a Christian and all your problems will be solved because you'll be a child of the king and God will give you everything you ask for. He'll heal all your ailments and he'll give you prosperity and security. Those are lies. Those are not true things that the Bible teaches. Actually, the truth is, if you become a Christian, your life will not be easier. It will be more complicated. I'm not trying to put put you off. It will be the best life you can have. But it won't be the easiest life. But why do trials come? Well, look at verse 7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may be result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Why does God allow his people to suffer? Because he loves you so much that he wants you to make it to the end. So you just have a look at uh, verse 7 and and try and identify in your own mind what are the most important two words in that sentence. I suggest that the most important two words are the words so that. Because when trouble comes, when suffering comes, the inevitable question we ask is why, isn't it? Why does God allow this to happen? 
I mean, that question why can be asked in a, a, a kind of selfish, entitled way. We might have listened to the world that says you ha are going to have a, a trouble-free life. We might have told ourselves that somehow we deserve a trouble-free life. And so we might just ask, why me? But there is a way of asking the question that is perfectly godly. There is a way of asking the question why from the position of simple bewilderment and blindness. How can this thing that has landed in my life, how can this be a good thing from a good God, a good Father in heaven? And some people in this room have had those things, haven't they? That have caused that question to be asked, why? And some of us will have them. I says all of us will. Well, look at verse 7. Peter gives us one of the clearest answers anywhere in the Bible. God gives us those trials as a gift to make sure our hope is truly set on the world to come. See, if you've never faced a difficulty in this life, if the prosperity gospel is true and being a Christian means a constant series of victories and triumphs and successes and healings and blessings, then what on earth is going to make you keep on trusting God to the new creation? What would stop you from gradually becoming more and more at home in this world? What would stop you from thinking that actually the kingdom of God has already come? In his kindness, God gives us the trials we do not want because he wants us to make it to the end. Now, one way I'm going to give you to help us remember this is that these trials are like the center aisle at Aldi. The center aisle at Aldi is very clever because it's full of things you didn't know you needed. So you go in for a bunch of bananas and you walk out with a 12-volt portable arc welder and an inflatable giraffe. Has nobody else done this? If you're a man. I know women stick to their lists. But men, the center aisle is designed for you. Because we look at it and we are completely taken in. I've got a friend who went in for a bag of pasta and he came out with an electric chainsaw. And the point is, you didn't know you needed them. No one goes into a food shop thinking, I must remember the 12-volt portable arc welder and the inflatable giraffe. But somehow, Aldi knew that you needed those things. And that is how Peter wants us to see the trials. They are never things we thought we needed, but they are things God knows we need. They feel at the time like setbacks, but they are the very things God knows we need to push us forward. And I suggest that if you can see trials that way, it won't make your troubles go away. But it will mean that the time will come when you will turn around and you will thank God. That time might not be until eternity. But the time will come. At what point do you turn around and thank God? Well, verses 8 and 9 gives us the answer. When you can see Jesus so clearly that our troubles are dethroned by joy in him. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We'll spend a bit more time on those verses next week, but let me conclude by returning to my question, are you an alien? See, the more you understand yourself as God's person, the more you will feel like an alien in a world that is hostile to God, and the more solid and real and beautiful that hope 
in Jesus will be. And the more you understand what it means to belong to God, the less you will feel at home in this world, and the more you will long to live for your true home. But of course, all that raises a very important question. And it should force us to ask whether these words are about you or whether you've made yourself too much at home in this world. It'll force us to work out whether we really do want to follow Jesus and identify with him with all the cost and pain that's going to be involved in that. Or whether we'd prefer to make this world our home after all. And all of that depends, as he puts it in 8 and 9, on how clearly we can see Jesus. And that is a theme we'll return to next week in verses 10 to 12. Well, you'll see at the bottom of the sheet a box for you to fill in. I'm going to give you a minute now to write something down that you've learnt or perhaps been reminded of, something you might want to do or change as a result, or just something you want to think about, perhaps something to discuss with someone over coffee, something to ask me about if you like, or something to talk about in small groups during the week, or simply to pray about. Let me give you a minute just to write one thing down in that box, and then I'll pray. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus, in choosing us, sanctifying us, forgiving us. Thank you for what you are doing for us in shielding us, guiding us, giving just the things we need to spur us on to hope in you. And we thank you for those things that you will do for us, the things that you have promised to us, the inheritance that you are guarding. And we want to thank you for your amazing grace and the future of peace that lies ahead for all who trust in you. Thank you for making us elect exiles. I pray for one or two this morning who may wish to turn to you for the first time, who may wish to be born anew into that living hope, and so receive forgiveness and receive a future that is beyond comparison with anything this world has to offer. We pray that they might do that now. Trust in you and live for Jesus from now on. In his name we pray. Amen.